The ocean has previously been described as a quiet place. A 1956 documentary even called it the silent world. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Waves crashing, the sound of rain hitting the ocean, marine life communicating. It's quite an orchestra of sound. And as with many things in life, humans have made their mark in the ocean soundscape. In this episode of Think Sustainability, we'll be focusing on the health of coral reefs, chatting to a researcher who is listening carefully to the sound of the reef in a bid to save them. He'll tell us about an experiment in which he's trying to lure fish into degraded reefs. We were playing sounds of a healthy reef in a degraded area and seeing whether or not that could attract larval fishes. And stick around because later in the episode we'll be chatting with a researcher who's analysing the smell of corals. If we could go out and take a little handheld device that can take a sniff of the reef, if you will, and um, that can tell you a lot about how healthy it is or the overall composition. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Marlene Even. So I mentioned earlier how the ocean is both a mix of natural and man-made sounds. So how does anthropogenic sound, that is, the sound generated by humans, impact marine life? So marine animals use uh, acoustics for a number of different things for their communication, whether or not it's uh, foraging or um, finding a mate or or looking for for prey. It's an important sensory cue for almost all marine life. My name is Miles Parsons. I am a research scientist focused on marine acoustics at the Australian Institute of Marine Science. Sound travels a lot further than light does underwater, so it, it is one of the main senses that animals in the sea use. And humans can generate a vast amount of underwater noise. So our activities that produce noise, such as um, vessels or the seismic surveys that we do when we're exploring for oil and gas, they create lots of different types of noise. And that can impact the marine fauna in a number of different ways. Dr Miles Parsons gives the example of a small noise in the distance. It's quite distracting. But as it gets closer and louder, it becomes a cause of stress. Those those noises can create what we call displacement. It can scare animals away from their their typical habitat where they would find food or where they would reproduce. And so it interacts um, and can disrupt important life cycle functions. And it can also mask communication. So if you think about trying to talk to someone in a loud environment, like, say, at a pub, it's a lot more difficult when there's background noise that is not what you want to be hearing. We create a lot of of noise with our our activities in the water. 
As you get very, very close, um, some of those noises can create um, injuries. If you go to a nightclub, say, for a while or in that loud pub and you walk away, you might find that if it's been very loud, your hearing feels a little bit worse for a short period. That's called temporary. That's a, a temporary threshold shift of your hearing sensitivity. So that means that you've, you've gone a little bit deafer for a short amount of time. Um, and that happens with marine fauna as well. And as its worst case, that can actually be a permanent hearing loss. So very loud noises can actually cause hearing loss in marine fauna. So when the pandemic began, our movement decreased rapidly or halted altogether. Our man-made noise started to quieten down. There's a lot less vessel traffic that's been going around. And that means there's a lot less of that vessel noise. And it, it means that, the, as you say, the ocean has become a quiet place for quite a place for a, a period of time. Suddenly, scientists around the world had the opportunity to listen to the ocean without all our noise. That's allowed a lot of researchers to be able to, to go out and detect animals making noise that they wouldn't have other been, otherwise been able to hear above the anthropogenic noise. So um, let's say over in Alaska, in Glacier Bay, they've been picking up whales at a, period, at a time where they wouldn't have done otherwise. What we've also been able to do is to look at the communication spaces and see how they've changed with this decrease in noise. So as that noise has been reduced, so animals are able to communicate over much wider areas because they're able to hear each other at greater distances. Knowing that marine life uses sound as a key communicator, it makes sense that when scientists want to conserve the reef, they need to listen to them. That's exactly what Dr Miles Parsons is working on and one key question is, what exactly does a healthy reef sound like? You are listening to the sounds of Ningaloo Reef in Western Australia. It's a lagoon area. The water is only four metres deep. That high-pitched snap, crackle and pop, the, 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 the crackling sound which is snapping shrimp. Lots and lots of snapping shrimp at different distances and different ranges. And they're all producing a sound by shooting water out of a jet from one of their, their claws. And that jet of water actually creates a little bubble, a bubble of air. And as that air collapses, expands that, that's what makes that click sound. And then in the lower frequencies, you've got a number of different sort of grunts and chirps and pops. And those are the, the fish sounds that we've got from on the reef. Some of those damsel fishes in there uh, making sounds. There may even be a few invertebrates producing some of those low frequency sounds as well. So how do researchers know we just heard the sounds of a healthy reef? Well, put simply, we heard a reef full of life. So if you have a very healthy reef, then you'll have that complex, what we call soundscape. That's the combination of different biological sounds. If it's, let's say, a barren area, 
then you don't have the animals that produce those sounds and you therefore don't have a lot of those sounds. So the, the soundscape becomes quieter and far less rich. Coral reefs cover 0.2% of the seafloor, but they support at least a quarter of marine species. There are over 1,500 species of fish in the Great Barrier Reef alone. In the fish life cycle, the reef fish will release their eggs, which drift in the ocean currents. The young fish will return to the reefs to grow to adulthood. And as the young larval fish return to the reef, they're searching for a good place to live. They're looking for different sensory cues, whether or not that's visual, smell, or what we're looking at, which is sound. There's been studies to show that larval fishes will recruit to reefs that have the sound of a healthy reef, that being it's loud with biological sounds and it's rich and diverse in the types of those sounds. now in northwestern Australia, and what you're listening to is the sound of many different types of fish. We're in that deeper water and there are actually fish choruses going on. So again, we don't have video to match that, so we don't actually know exactly what species these are producing the sound, but we have a number of different fishes that are all producing sound together in a, in a chorus. And we've got different types of choruses within that. If I asked you earlier, what does a fish sound like? Would any of these sounds spring to mind? Miles tells us about the diversity of the sounds fish make. So there are about 32,000 species of fish and we already know that a thousand of them produce sound and there's lots of different sounds that they make. Some sound very similar to birds. One that I've got a recording on um, actually sounds like a machine gun. So they're, they're very, very different in the sounds that they produce and it's, it, it's incredibly interesting to listen to. So with the knowledge that young fish are looking for a healthy reef to settle in by listening out for these sounds, the Australian Institute of Marine Science created an experiment. What we did was to take a recording from an area where we know there's typically good larval fish recruitment and there's nice high coral cover levels. So we know this is a a healthy area. It's called the Reef Song Experiment and it is jointly funded by the Australian Institute of Marine Science and mining giant BHP. And we took a recording that was done around the new moon last year, because this is the period where larval fishes recruit, or most highly recruit. And with this healthy reef noise captured as bait, this year they are beginning a five-year experiment to see if the healthy reef sound could increase the resilience of reefs. So the, the premise is that by bringing in larval fishes, Actually, they're having them reside on the, on the coral reef for a prolonged period of time will improve the resilience and the growth of the, the coral reefs. And they can do that by either removing some algae, by creating nutrients that can then feed the coral um, from their, basically from their poo, 
and from removing some of the some of the animals that would eat the coral. So there's there's a number of different ways that fish living on a reef can improve the the coral reef life. One aim is to find out exactly what sounds the fish are listening for. Do they like the sounds of the clicking invertebrates? Or is it the chatter of fellow fish that attracts them to a reef? We, we don't necessarily know if it's the loudness or if it's the complexity or if there's a specific type of sound within it that fishes are listening for. If you look at it from our perspective, it would be like having a, a song and trying to work out whether or not it's the loudness of that song, if it's the melody, if it's the harmonies, or if it's the overall combination of everything that people are interested in. And the pandemic has in many ways given us a window into how nature fares when we quieten down. And in terms of reducing man-made noise, Dr Miles Parsons says there are solutions available. Globally, we're getting a better understanding of the impacts of anthropogenic noise on marine fauna. And there are already in place lots of actions that are being taken to try and help limit or mitigate that impact. Uh, for example, if you look at vessels which produce a lot of noise, we found that by reducing the vessel speed, we also reduce the, the noise that's produced. If we start moving from diesel or, or typically motor-powered vessels to electric vessels, that can take out another component of noise. When you look at, let's say, seismic surveys, there is a lot of effort that goes around assessing the noise that is produced by a particular survey and how that might travel through the water over different distances. Regulators will try and match what we know about thresholds at which marine fauna show a response to the levels that might be produced by the seismic survey. And they try to make sure that there are limitations to the seismic surveys that are, that are actually conducted to mitigate and minimise any of that impact. So there are already actions being taken. We might potentially need to become globally more cohesive in how we apply those. Australia's Great Barrier Reef has been making headlines around the world this year. Rising ocean temperatures and a surge in tropical storms have put tremendous stress on sections of the Great Barrier Reef in recent years. Last year, the reef recorded its highest sea surface temperature since records began in 1900. UNESCO says the Great Barrier Reef should be downgraded to the in-danger list because of the ongoing effects of climate change a recommendation that has deeply angered the Australian government. Australia has been fighting the in-danger tag for years. Many in Canberra see it as a critique of its environmental policy. And intensive lobbying from Australia. In June this year, UNESCO, United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation, recommended that the Great Barrier Reef be placed on a list of World Heritage Sites in danger. The draft report stated insufficient progress has been made in meeting the key targets of the Reef 2050 plan. But after lobbying by the Australian government, the heritage site was not placed on the in danger list. Instead, the decision has been deferred till 2022. 
UNESCO will send a mission to visit the reef and evaluate its condition. And Australia will need to provide a progress report by February next year. Across the world, coral reefs are under threat. The status of Corals of the World report, funded by the UN Environment Programme, highlights that there has been some periods of recovery, but the mass coral bleaching events in the last decade has not allowed the reef to fully recover. The report states a reduction in global emissions is crucial for the future of the coral reef ecosystems. They're an incredible source for biodiscovery as well. So these are ecosystems that we want to conserve and protect. And I think in order to effectively do that, and as um, techniques move towards trying to restore specific areas as well, we need to fully understand how that ecosystem functions if we want to be successful in actually helping it and conserving it. This is Dr Caitlin Lawson, a research associate working at the University of Technology, Sydney and the University of Newcastle. I think there was a study that came out the other day and it's only something like 2% of corals on the Great Barrier Reef that have not been impacted by the recent mass bleaching events over the last decade or so, which is slightly horrifying to think about. That's 2% escaping bleaching since 1998. It's according to a study by the James Cook University. Coral bleaching occurs when coral is under heat stress. The research found 80% of the Great Barrier Reef has bleached severely at least once since 2016. But we have to keep hope and we have to keep educating people about the reef because people won't care about something and want to save it if they don't know about it. So it's just so important that we don't give up hope because there is absolutely still hope. It's hard sometimes, but you've got to, we've got to keep going and we've got to get the world to care about the Great Barrier Reef and be willing to make the changes that we need to. Like Miles, Dr Caitlin Lawson is researching the complex communication occurring underwater and using that research to conserve reefs. But instead of focusing on sound, Dr Caitlin Lawson is focusing on the smell of coral and what happens when coral is put under heat stress. The increasing temperature is actually significantly impacting almost every single aspect of the coral down to even its smell. In her research, she travelled to Heron Island in the southern Great Barrier Reef. She is investigating if the smell of coral is an indicator of the reef's health. I like talking about it in the sense of what does a coral smell like, but when it comes down to it, it is all these different tiny little chemical gases that make up the overall coral smell and it's all these gases can have so many important roles to play in the overall functioning of the reef and the whole ecosystem as a whole so the fact that we're seeing changes in them when the corals are starting to get stressed out is really important information that we need to continue to build on um, as these ecosystems are changing so drastically. 
So what does coral smell like? Yeah, I always get asked this question, what does a coral smell like? And I always fall back to it being just the smell of the sea. You can go for a walk along the beach if you get, it's often quite a distinctive smell at low tide. And I would liken it to that. It's just when things start getting unhealthy or a bit stressed, it just gets a lot more pungent than it would be if it's um, under healthy natural conditions. And by pungent, Caitlin links an unhealthy reef to the smell of seaweed. And while it smells different to corals, I think that is the most similar thing in my mind to link it to. It's a just very strong, I guess, almost a sulfury smell to it. It's a bit of a trick question. As Caitlin points out, you can't smell coral when you're underwater. I'm not able to um, really describe it well because my nose doesn't work great underwater. Um, like I know that I can tell you about the different chemicals that make up that smell, but trying to describe it, I always get stumped. In her recent study of the Great Barrier Reef, she found a multitude of gases emitted by coral and she's still counting. I was just looking at two different species of coral and I was able to detect 87 different gases. So there's a lot going on. In Miles' study of the sound of the reef, he tells us that an unhealthy reef is quieter and has a less diverse soundscape. Similarly, Caitlin found that the heat stress dramatically decreases chemical diversity of coral. By researching the chemical diversity of corals, Caitlin says scientists can learn about the functions and health of reefs. We know that some of those chemicals can be signalling cues, for example. I'm really interested in seeing if there are specific chemicals that are released when one particular coral starts to get stressed, it might release certain cues and that informs the surrounding corals that, OK, the conditions are not quite right, maybe we should upregulate some more of our protective pathways and try and defend ourselves from this upcoming stress. Or potentially if we're thinking in terms of coral spawning and when it comes to that amazing um, annual mass spawning events that happen on reefs, it could be that there are specific chemical cues that are released into the water before that also help that synchronicity across the reef. Certain gases emitted from coral can also impact the atmosphere. So there's this huge range of chemicals that are released into the surrounding environment and then some of them are released into the atmosphere as well. And once they're released into the atmosphere, a lot of these gases, they are very reactive. They have quite a short lifespan once they're in the atmosphere. So they're reacting with the other chemicals that are already existing in our atmosphere. They can end up reacting with greenhouse gases, maybe increasing the lifetime of some of them. There are certain types of gases that can then influence the lifetime and formation of tropospheric ozone, which is really important for us to understand the signalling and all the climate for climate modelling purposes. There's even a gas that can impact the cloud cover. Dimethyl sulphide, DMS, it received a lot of attention in this um, increasing cloud cover. When clouds form, they have these cloud-condensing nuclei and they often grow from the small aerosol particles that are in our atmosphere. And some of these gases that are released from corals or from phytoplankton in the ocean, 
they can form these small, they are these small aerosols that then these cloud condensing nuclei kind of build around and that can then have impacts on the local cloud cover and also how the albedo, so how reflective those clouds are as well. It's just fascinating to think that there are these small small organisms that can have such a large impact, but it's a very complex system and I think we're definitely still learning a lot about it. Unless you're doing invasive studies, Caitlin says researchers often rely on visual cues to determine the health of a reef. Her hope is to be able to use smell as sort of a health check for our reefs in the future. So it would just be excellent if we could go out and take a little handheld device that can take a sniff of the reef, if you will, and um, that can tell you a lot about how healthy it is or the overall composition. And to do this, she has her eye on a handheld device used in the forensic department at the University of Technology, Sydney. Where they're looking at these electronic noses. While the forensic team may use it for detecting drugs or possibly for looking for people after mass disasters, Caitlin has ideas of how she could use the same device for her research. We can use the same kind of instrument but tailor it once we've really worked out. There are key chemical indicators that tell us this is a healthy reef or this is a stressed out reef or maybe this reef is dominated by soft coral instead of hard coral. So once we have more of that baseline information, we can then feed that into these monitoring devices because that would be the ideal situation is if we've got a few target compounds that we know represent or mean something is happening in that particular reef ecosystem, then that can be a small handheld device that could be easily sent out to the local, the local um, stakeholders, the managers of the reef there, the stewards, I should say. She adds that there is a future possibility to create a reef restoration project similar to the reef song experiment Miles spoke about. But instead of using sound, they could use smell or a certain gas to lure coral. When you're trying to actually do reef restoration and help encourage, say, coral larvae to settle in a certain area, if we're able to find specific chemical cues that are released or that help initiate those larvae to settle in a certain area, then that would be excellent because we could, say, release a certain chemical cue in an area where we want to encourage corals to settle. Hearing no objections, it is so decided. History has been made here in Glasgow. The global agreement made at the COP26 meeting asks nations to limit global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius. After two weeks of negotiation, COP26 President Alex Sharma addressed the audience say with credibility that we have kept 1.5 degrees within reach, but its pulse is weak. According to the estimation by the climate resource, even if all COP26 commitments and pledges are fulfilled, global heating could peak at 1.9 degrees this century. 
but the difference between 1.5 and 1.9 is huge for coral reefs. A previous IPCC report, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, states at a 1.5 degrees increase in temperature, coral reefs worldwide are projected to decline by a further 70 to 90 percent. At 2 degrees, the report projected over 99% of the world's coral reefs would be lost. We just really need a very strong and concerted effort across the globe, really, which I know is just such a difficult thing to do, but we really do need to move as one and transition away from fossil fuels and really take strong action on climate change because as much technology and amazing techniques we might discover to help restore reefs, it's still going to be small scale. There's no way we can restore something the size of the Great Barrier Reef with any ease. We really do need to have big global action so we can actually limit warming and we can stop these really intense mass bleaching events. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.